We begin this morning our study in the Gospel of John. We spent the last year in Ephesians. Today, we embark a study, don't ask me how long, (laughs) in the Gospel, the glorious Gospel of Jesus Christ according to John. The pre-incarnate Word of God. Jesus, the God-man. The text that Drew read from this morning, verses 1 through 3, he opened the service this morning with verses 1 through 18, which is the prologue to the Gospel of John. One of the simplest in the entire Bible in terms of vocabulary. The simplest to understand. Easily readable. But at the same time, it's one of the most profound truths in the entire universe. Clear enough for a child to understand? Or at the same time, the most brilliant minds of the last two millennia have struggled, struggled as they become overwhelmingly perplexed with this Jesus of Nazareth being God. Their frustration is basically a result of their confusion because they believe that Jesus was simply a man. A good man, they'll say. A great teacher, they will confess. But, even so, simply a man, they foolishly conclude. In their frustration, or anyone's frustration for that matter, as to this gospel or anything that declares throughout Scripture that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is God, is frustrating because those who cannot understand lack saving faith. They lack saving faith. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 says, The natural man cannot receive the things of God, for they are foolishness to him. Natural man meaning someone who hasn't been supernaturally transformed by the power of God himself, which enables a sinner to believe. And if you've assumed without investigation that Jesus was simply a man or simply a great teacher, this gospel is predominantly for you. It's for all believers indeed, but it was specifically written to conclude by evidence Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ and the Christ is God in the flesh. Jesus is God. Last week if you were here we looked at Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 10 And that was really my introduction to the Gospel of John. Because in it we see the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on His throne. The train of His robe fills the temple. Isaiah walks in in a time of mourning because of the death of King Uzziah. He sees the Lord high and lifted up. He hears angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with His glory. His response? I'm undone. I'm doomed. I'm but a man. I'm finite. He came undone. It means to come unraveled at the seams. Realizing his finiteness in the presence of an infinite, the infinite, almighty God. The doorposts of the temple shook, filled the temple with smoke, which represents God's wrath and his judgment. That's the God who we're here to learn about today. God gives Isaiah his commission, his call. Go herald my word, which that's what preach means. Go preach my word. As a matter of fact, Isaiah, as you preach, the more you preach, the harder the people will become. The more blind they'll become, the more hard of hearing they'll become. You're not going to see a great amount of converts. But he preached and he preached and he preached. And we concluded with John chapter 12 In verses 37 to 41, the context, Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ in His public earthly ministry as it was wrapping up, coming to an end, He's facing the cross. It says the people that it was primarily delivered to, the Israelites, the nation of Israel, could not believe because they would not believe. So you see God's judgment of unbelief. In John chapter 12, verse 41, he quotes Isaiah, where he says these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. 
Him being Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ, in His glory. And that specific statement is unique to the Gospel of John. It's not found in the other Gospels. And a a serious student of the Word will come time and again to the Gospel of John, and a serious student of the Word is a student because they're transformed by the grace of God. They're a Christian. They're a sinner saved by grace. And as you open the pages of John's Gospel, you see a greater, magnificent picture of Jesus who is the Christ. He is God incarnate. This is the Gospel of the Holy of Holies. This Gospel is holy ground. Because it reveals for us the God-man. God incarnate. Jesus Christ. There's four, few, there's four viewpoints that are given in the Gospels as to Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Matthew. He presents Jesus as the King and promised Messiah of Israel. Jesus, King of Kings. Mark presents Jesus as the servant prophet. Jesus the servant, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus said, I did not come, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to lay down His life as a ransom for many. And then Luke presents Jesus as the perfect man, Jesus the Son of Man. John's Gospel is very different. It's different from the other three Gospels. And it presents the Son of God, the God-man, the deity the divinity of Jesus Christ is revealed clearly through this gospel. Fully God, as he was fully man, the only one that could ever be 200% of something. Jesus. No genealogy, humanly speaking. It simply starts out in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Gospel of John stands 92% unique to itself in comparison to the other three Gospels. In it we see the first gospel of Jesus, uh, the first miracle of Jesus, where he turns water to wine. We see the incident with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, where he says to Nicodemus, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a man be born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of heaven. As the wind blows to and fro, you do not know where it comes from, know where it goes, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, unless a person is born supernaturally reborn and the sin nature is transformed by the supernatural work of God, can't enter heaven. You're lost. It must be by His work. We see that in John chapter 3. We also see the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Samaritan woman. Jesus meets her at the well. High noon. <clears throat> Noontime. Talking to a woman alone was unspeakable. Let alone a Samaritan woman. <laughs> They were looked at as half-breeds by the Jews. Speaks to her. She comes to saving faith. She goes. She gets her friends. She brings her friend to Jesus. Jesus spends a couple days with them. People's lives are transformed. In the Gospel of John, we also see the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had no choice in his resurrection. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth. He came out. John, his gospel also leaves out many of the other things that the synoptic gospels speak of. Now, synoptic, the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke, And synoptic comes from a a Greek word that means to see together. Syn, S-Y-N, as in synonymous, to see something the same or to say one thing in another way. Synonymous. Sin, S-Y-N, and then optic. Optic means to see. Something visual. Something optical. Therefore, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic Gospels. And John is 92% unique to itself from those three, from the synoptic Gospels. So the synoptics follow the same outline. They're very similar in content as to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. They view together the same story from three different perspectives of the Gospel writers. But yet they are given a distinct voice from the authors. So the Gospels differ, but in no way do they contradict one another. We see the same story. It's kind of like seeing, you've heard the old story, you see an accident, three different people see the same accident from three different corners and so on. It's the same reality, there's just three different slants to that which took place before their very eyes. And that's what we see through the synoptic Gospels. 
John's Gospel revolves around seven miracles and seven I am statements of the Lord Jesus Christ where he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door to the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John chapter 15, I am the true vine. Some of the most widely known, most memorized portions of Scripture come from the Gospel of John. Everyone knows John 3.16. is probably the first verse we learned as children. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever, whoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled, Jesus said. You believe in God, believe also in Me, for in My Father's house are many mansions. If I go to prepare a place for you, behold, I will return again, so that where I am, there you may be also. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Me. Did Jesus say He was the only way? <laughs> yes, He did. God is not a hub, nor do all roads lead to God. So long as you're sincere, we'll learn today, there's one way to the throne of heaven, there's one way to God the Father, and it's through the Son, Jesus Christ. Period. Period. The author of the Gospel is the Apostle John, one of the twelve, the brother of James, who were the sons of Zebedee. Now these two brothers, zealous in temperament, you remember Jesus called them the sons of what? Thunder. The sons of thunder. I like that. In Luke chapter 9, verse 54, they go into Samaria preaching the gospel. They come out. They don't believe. So they say to the Lord, they go, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? And Jesus lovingly rebukes them. You know, he said, I came to save. You know, there'll be a day when he returns with fire from heaven. Jesus is coming back again. He's not coming as a hum humble, lowly servant to lay his life down. He's coming to judge with wrath. He came once to lay down his life. But over time, the Lord Jesus Christ certainly honed the zeal of James and John. They honed it into a, a, a healthy manner. And it's John himself who refers to himself in this gospel as the disciple in whom Jesus loved. See, he understood the love of Jesus Christ. He was very intimate relationally with Jesus. Jesus had his inner circle. He had the twelve. But just like in ministry, there are certain people that you spend more time with. You develop them more. You, you pour into them more. James had an inner, Jesus had an inner circle of Peter, James, and John. So John certainly understood the love of Jesus Christ. And all that zeal was honed, channeled in the right direction. Now John never lost his zeal. We don't want to lose our zeal. Okay? But zeal without knowledge is just some guy running around all crazy bouncing off the walls. We want to have zeal. We want to contain the zeal, but it must be balanced with knowledge. Right? Because knowledge alone puffs up, but love edifies. Love builds up. And then, John sits down 80, 80, 80 to 85 A.D., 50 years after the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, and he pens these divine ordained words of the Holy Spirit through his pen. Bringing back every detail is to the very ministry of Christ as John walks side by side with him. So the gospel was written to present the incarnate Son of God, God in human flesh. This is in order that people would believe in him. Presentation of the deity of Christ. The result was that some would believe, some would resist, and some would simply ignore. Same truth today. Some receive, some resist, some ignore. Some, ignore. some, rem some remain complacent, sitting under teaching for year after year after year. Complacent, full of head knowledge, but now submission to the truth of the gospel. Very dangerous if you're in that place today. You're in a very, very dangerous place. John 20, verse 31. John is summing up wrapping up the gospel and he says these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name that's his reason for writing the letter so John presents the eternal word of God how he was received how he was ignored how he was rejected 
in verses 1 through 18 are the prologue or the summary of the entire gospel. So the main thesis is all right here, verses 1 to 18. And then they're developed in detail throughout the 21 chapters of the Gospel of John. And we'll be looking at those for some time. This prologue is known to be one of the most magnificent sections of Scripture. And it's believed that in the first century church and shortly thereafter that these, verse, these first 18 verses were actually a hymn of the incarnate Word of God Himself. The church would rejoice and sing these very words. So John answers the question, Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He answers the question through the pages of Scripture, is Jesus being the central figure of human history? Central figure. If you attempt, as many have, to take Jesus, the person, out of Christianity and simply leave his moral, ethical teachings, Christianity crumbles. It cannot stand without the person of Jesus Christ. You remove the person of Jesus Christ, like a lot of these social gospel preachers, let's just go out and do what Jesus taught. Rather than preach repentance to the person of Jesus Christ, you do a disservice to the people that you're preaching to. It's not about social gospel. The social good that Christians do is a product of meeting the person of Jesus Christ. That's the difference. Acts 4 verse 12 says there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What you do with Jesus Christ not only affects your life now, but also your eternal destiny. No man has had such a profound effect on history than Jesus of Nazareth who is the Christ. No one. The cross is the centerpiece of time and from creation to the cross... People who were saved looked by faith, according to God's grace, they looked by faith forward to the centerpiece of time, the fulfillment of all things, though they did not know how it would play out, how it would work out, they knew that God would make provision. Everyone after the cross, up to this point today, and those after us until the Lord returns, we look back by faith to the centerpiece of time, the cross, the finished work of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. So in verses 1 through 18, we see Jesus, who is the Word, revealed in six different ways. The first way we see Him revealed, we see the pre-incarnate Word in verses 1 through 3. Secondly, we see the incarnate Word, verses 4 through 5. Then the prophetically announced Word in verses 6 through 8. Verses 9 through 11, we see the unrecognized Word. In verses 12 and 13, we see the life-transforming Word. And then, finally, the point number six, the glory and fullness of the Word in verses 14 through 18. But today, we'll look at the first. The pre-incarnate Word, verses 1 through 3. You ready? Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. Now, the he of verse 2 is the word of verse 1. In the word of verse 1 is the word who became flesh in verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Meaning, he pitched his tent among us. He lowered himself to become a human being. He shrouded himself in humanity. God himself lowered himself to become a man. So he is the word. Therefore, John proclaims that Jesus existed from the beginning with God the Father, as God. In other words, the opening verse contains the full statement of Christ's divinity. Jesus Christ is God. Now, there's three things to see about the divinity of Jesus Christ in this one verse. The first, Jesus pre-existed. He says, in the beginning. He goes straight for the heart. In the beginning. He was before all things. Jesus was not created. Jesus is creator. In the beginning. Now, there's a number of ways in which the phrase in the beginning is used in the Bible. 1 John 1.1, not the Gospel of John, but John's epistle, his first epistle towards the back of the Bible says this, 
That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The context of beginning there has to do with the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry. His earthly ministry in 1 John 1. Now, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The phrase here, context, the beginning of all creation. Pretty simple, amen? Now, in, God's, in John's gospel, the phrase in the beginning goes back even beyond the Genesis account of creation. Beyond that. This is back beyond creation. This is eternity past. That is where Jesus was. You know why? Because He is. Jesus is the I Am. The I Am that I Am. Ever-present, ever-existing God Almighty who became a man. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1 verse 1, you can just jot these down, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. The universe. Revelation 19.13 He's cloaked in a garment covered with blood. His name is called the Word of God. And Revelation chapter 1 speaks of Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Philippians 2.6, Paul wrote, before Jesus became a man, He was in very nature God and had equality with God. That's why they wanted to crucify Him. To declare yourself as the Son of God is to declare equality with God. Son of man, Son of God, declaring equality with God. Therefore, they pursued Him. They tried to catch Him in His words. They never could. They saw the miracles. And in frustration, they hold kangaroo court, which was illegal, taking Him through all those that He did that night. They arrest Him, turn Him over. He's crucified. You can't kill God. That's why He rose from the dead. Colossians, which we'll look at later, speaks about Creator God, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these verses reveal the pre-incarnate, pre-existent Christ. In the beginning was the Word. There He was, in the beginning. He spoke and the universe came into existence. The second statement, and the Word was what? With God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was... In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. Now, it's important, this statement affirms Christ's distinct personhood. Okay? He's distinct from the Father. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're same. They were the same. Jesus is the same as the Father in essence and nature. All that the Father is, the Son is, but yet He's distinct from the Father. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. This communicates for us face-to-face intimacy with the Father. In essence and nature, Jesus the Son is the same as the Father, but yet He's distinct from the Father, having face-to-face, intimate communion, intimate fellowship. See, John is attentive here to the fact that the Trinity is expressed within the Godhead. Divinely inspired Word of God. Spirit, who penned the words about the Father and the Son being face to face, made it clear that we serve one God manifest in three persons. Individual persons. Not God who hops around from Jesus to God the Father to God the Son. That's called modalism. T.D. Jakes teaches that. Not modalism. One God, three persons of the Godhead. This communicates the most intimate form of communion. The most intimate form. So it helps us to understand that when Jesus lowered Himself willingly, it says in Philippians 2.7, Jesus made Himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Likeness of who? Likeness of those He created. Likeness of those who blasphemed Him. Likeness of those who spit on Him. Likeness of those who took their hands, laid their hands upon Him and crucified Him. The hands that He spoke into existence. 
He became like one of us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So it's easier for us to understand the intimacy that he had with the Father when we read John 17, 4, the night before Jesus is arrested. Moments before he's arrested, this is what he says, John 17, 4. Father, I've glorified you on earth. I've finished the work which you've given to me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before we made it all, Father, that intimacy we had, face to face, glorify your name so that I can get back face to face with you in glory. He wanted back what he always had with the Father before he ever came to earth. Jesus condescended. He stooped low coming to earth to be forsaken by the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God is holy. He cannot look upon sin. God allowed all of His wrath to be unleashed upon His Son. And God cannot look upon sin. My God, why have you forsaken me? There must be payment for sin. And the only way you can sit here and say, I'm going to heaven, is because all of the righteousness that Christ had was placed upon your account by faith. And all of your sin was placed upon Him as though He Himself committed the sin of every sinner that ever would believe. Great exchange. Righteousness by imputation. That's what you have. Righteousness applied to your account. You're made righteous in position. That's how God sees you if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you're still in your sin and you're lost. We urge you today to bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. In spirit and in truth. This is what Jesus wanted, face to face, glorified, intimate communion with the Father, who he was one with, but yet distinct from at the same time. The third phrase in verse 1, we looked at in the beginning was the Word. We see Christ pre-existed. And the Word was with God. He was distinct from the Father with face to face communion. The third phrase, and the Word was God. This is the declaration that Jesus is fully God. The Word was God. Or literally, and God was the Word. And God was the Word. This means that everything that can be said about the Father, everything that's said about the Father can be said about the Son. Because in Jesus Christ dwells all the wisdom, all the power, all the authority, all the love, all the holiness, all the glory, all the goodness, and all the justice that is in the Father. Everything that's in the Father is in the Son. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Jesus was there when He spoke, when he spoke creation into existence. Keep your finger here in John and, and turn to Proverbs chapter 8. Now, in Proverbs chapter 8, what we see here is the manifest wisdom of the Word. The excellence of godly wisdom. In verses 22 to 31, we see the eternal wisdom of Christ in creation. But for the sake of time, let's just read verses 27 to 30, where it says, When He prepared the heavens, I was there. When He drew the circle on the face of the deep. When He established the clouds above. When He strengthened the fountains of the deep. When He assigned to the sea its limit. The waves can only go so far, right? Unless there's a hurricane that God ordains. They're limited so that the waters would not transgress His command. When He marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside Him as a master craftsman, and I was daily His delight, rejoicing always before Him. The very wisdom of God is the very Word of God, and the very Word of God is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus was always there, easily explained, but yet beyond comprehension outside of saving faith. That's why the natural man can't understand these things. The only way to be able to grasp and understand this and entrust yourself to it is by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit lifting the veil of unbelief. Rejoice, brothers and sisters, in that. Amen? You've been blessed with grace. Faith to believe. Unbelievable. So John divine, defines Jesus Christ with a very unique word. And here now we must look 
in one of the most important words in the entire gospel, and that's the word word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So why didn't John just say, in the beginning was Jesus, Jesus was with God, and Jesus is God, right? Because, you know, so many people say today, well, Jesus never absolutely claimed to be God, which that's so not true. Just John chapter 8 alone where he says, I am. (laughs) You don't get any clearer than that. He's the I am that I am that, that who spoke to Moses through the burning bush. Lord, who shall I say send me to, who shall I say is sending me to deliver your people from the bondage of Egypt? I am. I am. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So in English here we see the word word. In Greek it's the word logos. We see it in verse 1, we see it in verse 14. A word is a symbol, whether it's written, whether it's spoken, it expresses thought. That's what words do. And here we have the divine expression of God Himself. Expressing thought, expressing reason. All that He is, is being expressed here through Logos. In the beginning was the Logos. Logos was with God, the Logos was God. Verse verse 14, the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. So in order to understand this term, we have to ask what the meaning would have been for those who first received this gospel letter. For instance, what would it have meant to the Jew who was hearing the gospel for the first time? We'll begin with that. So in the beginning includes the term word, and that would lead a Jewish person back to Genesis. In the beginning, God what? Created. He spoke creation into existence. So to the Jewish mind who who, by the way, would think in very concrete terms, a word spoken to them was a deed done. It's kind of like the handshake used to be in America. Decades ago now. You could do business on a handshake, yeah? You don't do business on a handshake today. Crafty, sly little snakes slithering all over the place. Come on now, somebody. You need three lawyers on each side to do a business deal today. Used to be able to be done with a handshake. In this day, a word spoken was a deed done. And to the Jewish mind, thinking in concrete terms, what God said, something was going to take place. What He said, God did. God spoke it into existence in the beginning. So, to the Jewish mind, Jesus would be associated with all creative power of God Himself. That's how they would see this. Everything that God did in directing those that were His was by His Word, by way of the Word. The Word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The Word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. The Word of the Lord came to Jeremiah or whomever the Word came to. They would hearken and they would take heed. They would put the hand to the ear and take heed because the Word spoke. The Lagos spoke. To them it was more like an action or more like an event versus just words floating around. It was concrete. Isaiah 55.11, God said, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. So to the Jew, John is saying, Look, you want to see the full embodiment of the word that you've heard all through your law? what's known as the Old Testament, all that God created, all that God said, all that He fulfilled, everything He did, and all that He promises to yet do, the full embodiment of that lagos, of that word, is in Jesus Christ. It's all in Christ. He's the fulfillment of everything that you've heard and everything that you're waiting for. So Jesus Christ is the entirety of the Old Testament concept of the word of the law Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away but my word will stand forever my word so everything that came to man in the Old Testament God's power God's wisdom was his lagos everything that came to man in the New Testament God's power God's wisdom was his lagos and his lagos was his son Jesus who's God he's God 
Hebrews chapter 1 again, verse 2 and 3, God in these last days has spoken to us by His Son whom He has appointed heir of all things. Through whom He made the universe. Now listen to this. He who, be, who being the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person in upholding all things by the word of His power. The word of His power. He is the word. He's the Logos. God's power, God's mind, God's wisdom, God's will, God's reason came to earth in bodily form. All became a man. This is what the Jew would have understood the Logos to be. The authoritative, heavenly voice of God Almighty. So he says, look, I'm going to show you what it all means. It's all in Christ. He's the embodiment of it all. So we got the Jewish mindset, very concrete. There was another group of people. We must remember that this gospel wasn't written to Jews alone. They weren't the only ones reading this gospel. It would have also been read by the Greeks, those who spoke Greek, those who were influenced by Greek culture, Greek thought. They didn't think in concrete terms. They thought very abstractly. So what would the word logos mean to them? Very different. Very different concept. They were heavily into philosophy. And they believed that there was some higher power source that just made everything happen. They believed that because man was able to reason, that man had a mind, there was some supernatural power or some entity that just kind of floated around that had the same reason or mind. Well, if we have it, there must be something greater that has it as well. It's kind of like the 12-step guys, you know. I have a higher power. Define that higher power for me. Define it. Is your higher power a doorknob? Because it's dead. Or is it Jesus who's the Word? So, the Greeks, in their mind, had a God with a small g that was some sort of universal hovering entity that gave man the ability to think, to reason, and to respond to everyday life. Very abstract. So, their reasoning was not a personal power source, but more of a philosophical floating power that just made stuff do what it does. Heraclitus, a philosopher who lived 6th century BC, he said this, it's impossible to step into the same river twice. And what he meant by that was you can step into a river once, step out, step into a river the second time, but when you step out the second time, the river has passed by. The water has flowed on and by stepping in it a second time or a third time, it's a different river. Because that's just kind of life, what life is doing in their mind, you see. It's just floating by. So they would raise the question, they would say, well, if that be so, how is it that everything exists and it's not in a state of perpetual chaos? Which is a good question. So Heraclitus answered, life is not a chaos because the change that we see is not by mere random change, it is ordered change. It's ordered by some divine entity. Some logos. It's just kind of floating around. So what they meant is there must be some divine reason or word that controls it. This was their logos. This was their idea of logos. Okay. Plato, a century later, said this, and I quote, it may be that someday there will come forth from God a word, a logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. So John is saying this, yes, you followers of Heraclitus and Plato, the logos has come. The true God has been revealed to us perfectly in the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. He's the Christ. He's the fulfillment of it all. He's the reason behind it all. He's the creator of it all. And He's the redeemer of all who will believe. So, by using Logos, John is saying to both Jews and to Greeks that for centuries, this word of God that you've been attempting to define, all that you've been trying to define all your lives, the fulfillment is in Christ. The embodiment of it all is in Christ. He is the Logos. He is the Word. So, John's reaching the whole world with one expression. Isn't that heavy? Man did not write this book. 
Man penned the words by the supernatural work God breathed into these men, His very word. Penned through them. Simple words, but with immeasurable, intense meaning. You can't comprehend it if you don't have the faith to believe. If you don't have the faith to believe, plead, cry out to God to grant you the faith to believe. I beg of you. So in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And then verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. So John is simply restating all the profound truths of verse 1. He condenses the preceding phrase into a short summary. The Word always was, and the Word was with God. John Kelvin writes this. He says, and I quote, The evangelist summary here is that so you may understand that this beginning was before all time. He created time. He's outside of time. He's outside of space. He is the I am. He is the now. He created time and space. Incomprehensible with the mind. Yet, enabled understanding is granted finite individuals with the ability to believe as God grants faith to those who see their need as He initiates a relationship. Jesus is God. Jesus always was God. To accept Jesus as anything less than God is blasphemy. Is blasphemy. And anyone who teaches, any cult that teaches, any individual who wants to disparage Christ is being either a God or just a good guy who had some really cool teachings, they're accursed. They're accursed. If you believe such blasphemy, may you yourself either repent, and I urge you to repent, or you shall be accursed. And those aren't, aren't my words, just the messenger. Look at Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1, here's Paul writing about the one true gospel. Gospel means good news. The reason there's good news is because there's a whole lot of what? Oh, there's bad news all day. Amen? My heart's bad. My heart's wretched. You know, the tragic incident at Virginia Tech, as tragic, as sick as that is, is simply the outward manifestation of the corrupt sin that is in every heart of every human being, anybody and left to themselves is capable of things such as that. And if you think you stand, the Bible says, take heed lest you fall. That's the nature of man. That nature must be supernaturally transformed by the work of God. That is why Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom. So the Creator must come and recreate the nature of the man or woman who's born a sinner. So anyway... Galatians. Paul, the one true gospel, he says, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from Him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, you, you have experiences? I don't care what the experience is. If some angel comes to your room and declares that Jesus Christ is not God, look what he says. Even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, then what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men... I would not be a bondservant of Christ. If I were here to please you all or anyone who comes through these doors, I would tell you that no matter what you believe, you're going to heaven just so long as you are sincere. And then I would be accursed. <laughs> that would be a lie from the pit of hell. God is not a hub and all roads lead to God just so long as you're sincere. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He's the gate and the gatekeeper. He's the turnstile. You, don't, you only have room for one at a time. No baggage. No philosophies. No outside beliefs. It's Christ and Christ alone. It, it, there is no patting each other on the back saying, you know, let's just agree to disagree. Okay? You, Jehovah's Witness buddy, you say you're crazy translation, which is no translation at all, by the way, of the Greek. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was 
with God and the Word was a God. Okay? They claim to be monotheistic in their belief system, saying that they, we serve Jehovah God, we serve one God. Well, according to your crazy translation, you're a polytheist if Jesus is a God. There's a contradiction right there. We do not give people with another gospel the platform to speak their heresy. There's no patting on the back, no saying, oh, I love you, let's just agree to disagree. Look at, go to the back of the Bible, 2 John. Look at 2 John. Now, John, St. John, is writing this letter and he's saying, look, my little children, the elect lady, he opens up the letter with, the elect lady, which means the church, God's chosen people saved by grace. He's saying, beware of the Antichrist deceivers. For many, verse 7, deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Verse 9, whoever transgresses does not abide and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. I don't care how much someone says they know God, how much they've experienced God, how much how many goose pimples they get on the back of their neck or the hair standing on their neck, if they believe that Jesus Christ to them is the way but there's other ways to God, they don't have God. Says the scripture. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, he's God, he's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. They don't have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house or greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deed. In this day, these preachers would roll into town. They would have this gospel message, which was another gospel. And typically in that day, in first century Christendom, you would allow these people into your house. You would house them. You would feed them. You would care for them. Is one of your own. Is someone of the way. When they brought this gospel, they said, don't even let them in your house. Don't feed them. Don't house them. Don't give them bedding. No. Do not give them a platform. Do not encourage them. Do not pat them on the bottom saying, oh, we just agree to disagree. No. Shut them out. No support. These are perpetrators of the false gospel. Now, it's a very important. We're sinners saved by grace. We have the truth. Amen? Now, we're going to come across people every day who have a different gospel. Now, we want to dialogue with them, correct? And to dialogue with them, to give them the truth, you have to hear what they've got to say. That's evangelism. That's what we do. We do that. You do that with family members. You do that with co-workers. You do that with schoolmates and things of that nature, neighbors, friends, and so on. But what we're not to do is give them a platform and encourage them in that lie. We want to challenge their thinking. We actually, I mean, you can't evangelize someone until you listen to them first. Amen? We want to listen to them. We want to. I traveled with a bunch of Hollywood people for a year in 2004, 2005, and a bunch of celebrities and people who are rock stars and all that stuff, and I was able to share the gospel with very abstract thinkers that made me think of these Greek philosophers of the day, because artists and musicians are very abstract in their thinking if they don't know the concrete truth and reality of Jesus Christ. So, to be able to give them the truth, I had to listen to them first. And you know that whatever they got to say, they got nothing to stand on. So you let them talk. And then you bring the sword of truth. And you just cut it up. You let the sword do the work. The sword will do the work. Sharper than any two-edged sword is the word of God. Jesus is the word. Take these perpetrators of the false gospel. Don't give them a place to stay. Don't give them a platform. Don't share a platform with them. If anything, point them out as a heretic. See, these... Man, this New Testament church, these apostles, they were serious. The, the battle that they fought, guys, was not getting their head lopped off by, <clears throat> by Rome. The biggest battles they fought was within the walls of the church who professed Christ, but it was a different Christ. So when a guy like me or some of the brothers I have here and a lot of the ladies in this church who know sound doctrine will pine out, point out false teachers and then a lot of times you get looked at as the bad guy. Oh, you're so critical. That's right. We don't want to be critical people. We want to have our critical spirit. You want to, have a, you want to be a critical thinker who weighs all things in light of the everlasting truth 
of the living Word of God. The Word of God. Verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. Here's a positive, here's a negative. Positives, Christ made everything. Very simple. Christ made everything. The negative is, without Him, nothing was made that was made. Okay, now listen to this. Just jot these down as we wrap up. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Just listen to this glorious passage of Scripture. For by Him, context Jesus Christ, all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. Revelation 4, verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord... Jesus, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. According to whose will? His will. The Great Commission, Matthew 28. Before it says, Go therefore and make all disciples of all nations, it says, Jesus said, All power and authority has been given to me in heaven above and earth below. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Kent Hughes writes in his commentary in the Gospel of John that there are about a hundred billion stars in the average galaxy. A hundred billion stars in the average galaxy. And there are at least one hundred million galaxies that are known in space. Can anyone do the math on that real quick? Einstein believed that with our greatest telescopes of the day, he said that we have scanned with our largest telescopes only one billionth of theoretical space. Oh, staggering. Okay, this means that there's something like ten octillion stars in space. Ten octillion, that's a ten with 27 zeros behind it. Wow, sister. Whoa. And Jesus created them all. And not only did He create them all, He gave them all a name. Come on. Psalm 147 tells us that this. He counts the numbers of stars. He calls them all by name. And in the same psalm, the same psalm, 147, jot it down. The one who counts the stars, the one who names the stars, also heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Creator God. That's his heart. That's his heart. Psalm 8, verse 3, says this, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are even mindful of him? What is sinful, wretched, rotten man that you who created all this, who just spoke it into existence, is even mindful of me? A wretched, rotten sinner. Amazing. Everything that God created in perfect harmony was cursed. Everything is now subject to decay from the time that Adam sinned and every human being has been affected thereafter who's been born with a sin condition. The earth has been cursed. People who say, well, smoke weed. Well, you know, God put it here, dude. You know? Oh. Who are you, Spicoli? It's a weed, it's a product of a cursed earth. Bunch of Rastafarian pagan worshippers. Man's willful rebellious sin is a consequence of Adam's sin. All of earth has been cursed. Christ is going to return in His glory and He's going to restore everything He created into its perfect order. The earth itself is crying out and groaning with anticipation to be restored. Romans 8.21 says this, The creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Has He rebirthed the sin condition in your soul? You can't say that, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not born again. If you're not born again, you're not a Christian, says Jesus. 
unless a man be born again, he cannot, he will not ever see the kingdom. That nature must be transformed. And the one who created the universe is the only one that can recreate the sin nature and make it new. He takes residence inside. And He transforms you from the inside out. And He makes you perfectly righteous in position. And when you realize that all your sin was washed away, He laid down on the cross all of the sins of all those who would ever believe, to those who will believe, were laid upon Christ as though He committed the sin of everyone who would ever believe. And in return for belief, which is a gift from God in the first place, granted by grace through faith, all of Christ's righteousness is placed on the account of the believer. So when God looks at the sinner saved by grace, He sees perfect righteousness in position. That's how you get to go to heaven. Because you have to be perfect to get to heaven. And the only way to be perfect to get to heaven is to receive the grace gift of the righteousness of Jesus Christ placed upon your account by faith in believing. And to believe, improve belief, is to repent from a sin nature and to turn to Christ and surrender all that you are to Him. And that life will manifest the righteousness from within outwardly. Amen. Glorious gospel. Jesus came in human form. He lowered Himself to become a man in perfect obedience to the Father. He met the standard of perfection. The Lagos. God's going to restore creation in such a manner that animals will no longer eat one another. A child can play with a, can play with a snake. A child will be able to stick his hand into where a scorpion is and not be harmed. Because in Isaiah 11, verse 6, it says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child, just off a of mama's breast, shall put his hand in the viper's den. Because the Prince of Peace will come back and restore everything to its original condition. No more curse, no more sin. The only curse that there will be is for those who reject the Lagos as who He is. And there must be payment for sin. There must be payment for sin. Jesus is the Creator. He's the Redeemer and the Lord of all creation. And He's the only Redeemer of the soul for those who believe. He's the only one. He's the only way. He's the only source that can transform a sin nature and to grant that sin nature a new nature which believes. And then these words come to life. These words become applicable. These words you, you, you begin to have a hunger for. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. Blessed are those who have a pure heart for they shall see God. And if you're a believer, you see God through the living word of God. Amen? Through His word. The Word incarnate. There's always those who will claim that you know, faith is something that must be separate from evidence. But the Bible teaches that nowhere. There's many people, you could, they could roll in here, well I have faith. We're going to go downtown at noon on Thursday. We're going to jump off a 20 story building. And I have so much faith that we're going to land on our feet. And we're going to rejoice in this God that we serve. And we're not going to be injured. That's my faith. Well you're a fool. You're a fool. Because your faith is based, based on fantasy. Because when you jump, you will soon realize that the law of gravity will take over and you will die. This faith in Jesus Christ is based on fact. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him nothing was made that was made. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, full of truth. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. If you're in Christ, you've been granted grace. You've been granted the faith to believe. If you're not in Christ, you're just as lost as when you walked in the door. And you will have an opportunity in your heart. I don't ask people to come forward because I believe God does a supernatural work right where you sit. You can go home and cry out to God in your face and I'll tell you what, if He's calling you, respond. Don't move emotionally. Count the cost, Jesus said. No one, no one, he said, can follow me until they count the cost. We're not going to lie to you until your life's still going to get all better and you're going to get rich and famous and all that. You know what? 
count the cost because the cost is the cross. You must crucify your pride. Because all of your flesh right now, all that you are, your very nature is chafing under this teaching. And that pride must be killed. It must be crucified. That's the only hope you've got because He's the only source. He's provided it. The one who created it provides the recreation of the soul. Call on Him today. I plead with you to call on Him if you don't know Him. If you know Him, you're a brother or sister in Christ. We share in the goodness, the greatness, and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that He's provided for us. That's why we meet on Sunday. Come on, somebody. Faith is believing on the basis of evidence and then acting upon it. Turning from me, from my throne, I step off and I turn to Christ who is on the throne. Your throne is a figment of your imagination. He's on the throne. He's on the throne. Become part of the family today. You've heard the evidence? Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of God. Glory to God. So, in this case, John's provided evidence to the full deity of Jesus Christ so the readers of all ages and throughout all the ages can believe. It's fact. Historical evidence. Christ is the only Lord and Savior because only He is. He's I Am. He is I Am. Pilate said... He was ready to turn Jesus over to be crucified. What then shall I do with this Jesus who is called Christ? And if you're not in Christ today, the same question goes out to you. What are you going to do with this Jesus who's the Christ that is the Creator and the only one who can recreate in you a new nature? Call out for His mercy. Call out for His grace. Call out for faith to believe. If you want to talk to me, you come talk to me. If you're a lady, you don't want to talk to me, I'll point you to a lady who can counsel you with the truth of the gospel because today perhaps, by, by God's miraculous divine appointment, He's lifting the veil of unbelief in your life to save your soul. And if you're in Christ, rejoice. And if you're in Christ, what's the application? Here's the application. As we're studying through the Gospel of John, may Jesus Christ become more grand and more great and more holy in your mind, in your life, through your life, because He is holy, holy, holy. Just as Isaiah saw Him, high and lifted up. That's who Isaiah saw, Isaiah 6. He saw Jesus in His glory, and Jesus is coming back in His glory, not to lay His life down. Take those that are His. Home. Forever and ever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we humbly, humbly come before You thankful for Your divine plan of salvation by providing Your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the Word, who is the same as You, Father, in essence and nature, distinct in personhood. We thank You that You've provided and sent the Holy Spirit, one in essence and nature, to indwell those who believe. And I pray today, Holy Spirit, You would do a work in the lives of those who perhaps think they know You, and in reality they don't. If they have any other belief system, and they've had it up until this point today, I pray that You would absolutely shatter it. And bring to their very soul the understanding that there is but one way. And the one way became the living Word. and took on human flesh to meet your standard, Father, sinless perfection in a body in the likeness of man. The only one that's ever been 200% of something, fully God and fully man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would work the hearts of those who don't believe today and birth in them a new nature, an ability to believe, the faith to believe it, the hunger to grow in it. And for us who are in Christ, may you re-establish a deepening hunger for truth that we would manifest it 
through our lives as we, as we submit to you more of ourselves to become holy just as you are holy by simply abiding in Christ for you say Jesus that without me you can do nothing thank you for this time thank you for these dear people grant us the grace to proceed for your glory and honor and all that we do think and say in the name of our Savior the God man the word the Lagos Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great day, great week. I love you all. Amen.